the where we are in our fulfilled series, and I hope you've enjoyed this so far. Um, this series we started at Easter time, uh, really going through and looking at the prophecies of Jesus. And the reason we did that is that there's a, a lot of people at. Uh, that put their faith in, uh, there's what, billions of people in this world that put their faith in, in all kinds of religions. And uh, it is faith. We'll grant you that. And yet, there's a difference between reasonable faith and just crazy faith, right? Reasonable faith is the kind of faith that allowed you to sit in your chair this morning, right? You didn't have to go and scientifically check out every single bolt and screw to make sure that they weren't replaced by marshmallows, right? You knew that your chair was probably, you just trusted. You sat by faith, and it worked, right? Because it's reasonable. Because if you have to check out every single chair before you sit down in it, we call you crazy. We call you paranoid, right? We all live by faith. Well, God asks us to have faith in him for our salvation. This is important stuff. And he wants us to have a reasonable faith. Well, there's all kinds of religions in the world that say, hey, believe me, right? Believe this. God gave us something amazing in scripture so that we would know what our faith is, is actually reliable. It's a reasonable faith. And those things were called prophecies. There was other things that he gave us also. But he gave us these prophecies because only God can tell the future. People aren't great at telling the future, right? I I mean, the weathermen told us there would be a snowstorm, that was awesome, but they didn't know it was anywhere between two inches and five feet. God was telling us hundreds, even a thousand years before the Messiah came, down to like what he would say as he died. Words, what he would wear, what people would do, the manner of his death, his identity, what family he was going to be in. God t- said with such precision, 100% accuracy, so we would know that the Messiah was actually from him. And so we would have reason to place our faith in him. And I hope that you've enjoyed so far as we've gone through uh, this, that we've seen uh, how God, hundreds of years before Jesus came, how he prophesied the resurrection, right? So that Jesus would be savior. That was going to be what the Messiah was going to do. How, uh, how he prophesied over a thousand years for how Jesus was going to die. He was going to be the sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was not John the Baptist's idea, but God's prophesied over a thousand years before he came. How even, we talked about last week, that stealth prophecy, how, how this Messiah would be the son of man. He would be a human male. And how important that was. Uh, and today we get to talk about one that was a little different. Uh, see, uh, the, the sacrifice didn't make sense. Right? Remember that Psalm 22? The people didn't really, the, the Jews didn't really sing that psalm very often because it was awkward because it was describing a crucifixion before crucifixions even existed. Kind of weird. And, and the whole Savior bit, they agreed that Savior, but a lot of the things that Isaiah prophesied about how Jesus was going to save, that suffering servant Savior, didn't quite make sense. It was this anomaly. Or, or even last week, the Son of Man, only two times in the Old Testament where the, where the Messiah was prophesied to be Son of Man, how that was something that was kind of just under the radar. Today was a prophecy that was not under the radar. In fact, this was the prophecy that most Jews looked to for their Messiah. And that is this, that Jesus would be, uh, that he would be the Son of David. Of course, before we get to that, we want to do our memory verse. Because I think we'll miss the impact of what Jesus does by being son of David if we don't really get this tattooed on our heart. And so our uh, memory verse for this uh, series is Ephesians 2.8. And it says this, For as by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That's the most liberating verse. That's just an amazing, wonderful thing. We'll talk about how that gift came here today as we go through it. 
Now, today, of course, we're going to talk about that, that well-known prophecy about Jesus' royalty and where he came from. So um, what I want you to do is you get your Bible, and uh, if you would mind, if you take your Bible and open it up to 2 Samuel 7. Now, if you have one of the church Bibles here, that's going to be on page 212. And if you don't have a Bible, or you really need a new one because you can't read the one you have, uh, take one of these, just our gift to you. It's a great thing. But 2.12 and 2 Samuel. Let me tell you all about 2 Samuel while you guys are turning what's happening in this passage. Uh, 2 Samuel is a book in the Old Covenant. Um, it was written probably by the prophet Samuel. Um, there was prophet Nathan probably had a little bit to write in there and things like this. And really records the spiritual history of Israel. And it goes into the life of David, okay? And uh, so here we have in Second Samuel, uh, we have uh, uh, David, King David, is now on the throne. And uh, he, he's a very faithful man. And it bothers him very deeply that he's living in this really awesome house. He's got this palace, right? It's beautiful and all this. And as he looks out from his palace, he sees the tabernacle, which is a tent, a beautiful tent that God told the Israelites to make back with Moses. So it's like that tent by now is like 400 years old. And it's been there for hundreds of years of the people of Israel. The sacrifices are going and all that kind of stuff. And the tabernacle's there and the presence of God is there. And David says, how is it right that I have a house that is permanent and God, who is the one who is the one that makes the, our nation permanent, that he lives in a tent. This is not okay. And so he sets out into his heart. He says, I want to build a, a, a temple, a permanent structure, something worthy of God. And he talks about it to, to his, his good friend, the prophet Nathaniel, and, 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 and it sounds good at first. But then... Uh, but then God gives him this answer back as to whether or not he should, he should actually make this, this thing. And so if we're in 2 Samuel 7, do you start there with us at, uh, well, verse 11, kind of halfway through. It's about halfway down in your Bible there. It says this, The Lord declares that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offsprings to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And it's an amazing prophecy. Basically, God's telling him, listen, you can't build a temple for me because you're a man of war. David, I know that you love me. This is awesome. You've tried to honor me by building a house. And that's wonderful. Uh, but no, you can't build a house because you're, you're a man of war. You can read that a little bit above that. Uh, but, then, but then he says, you know what? I'm going to honor you. You wanted to build a house for me? I'm going to build a house for you, David. That's what I'm going to do. That's kind of cool how God does this. And he gives us this amazing prophecy of what God is going to do uh, when he builds this David an enduring house. And I hope you read, see in that prophecy there are some things that God promises and the first thing he says in there, he's going to give David a messianic heir. That's where he says the Messiah is going to come from. He says, when your days are over, I will rest, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. His own flesh and blood. So David is going to have somebody who is biologically related to him that is going to be the Messiah. That's a big deal. 
right? That's one of our clues. There are lots of families in the world, right? Lots of people, and God basically rules out most of the world saying these are the people who are going to be qualified to be Messiah. You have to be a son of David, right? And God was going to raise up this messianic heir. Now, this heir is going to do some things. He's going to be a biological descendant, but also he's going to be David's legitimate successor because it says there, God says, I will raise up your offering to succeed you. And we don't have kings in our country, right? We, we were kind of sour to that after the whole Revolutionary War thing, right? But we, what we have is when we look at kingdoms, this is what happens. You have somebody who is royalty, and then uh, they will have children, and those children, not because they deserve, they've done anything, but because of their identity, because of their bloodline, they get to succeed the throne. And it's not just anyone. There's an order to it, right? We look at, like, England, you know, which of the princes are going to be the next king, right, after the queen decides to, to step down, right? There's an order to this. And so God's going to go through the order of royalty. There's going to be a king that succeeds David. So he's going to be David's biological heir, but he's also going to be his royal heir. Because not all the biological heirs of a king actually are the royal heirs. Does that make sense? That kind of narrows it even further. And God says, for this heir, for this person, there's going to be a biological and royal heir to you, I'm going to build a house for him. I'm going to build a kingdom for him. And so that's the first prophecy. I think that's pretty, that, that really narrows it down as to who we should be looking for. Next thing that it says there is that God promised the heir an eternal kingdom. And uh, again, he says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a long time, right? That's, that's legitimately a very long time. In fact, as the, the younger generation says, that is literally a long time, forever, right? Uh, God would establish this kingdom. It's not that this heir would establish his kingdom. This heir is not going to have to rise up and have this massive war or anything like that. God is going to establish this heir's kingdom. And not only that, but this kingdom is going to last eternally. Now, you can only hold a throne as long as you're alive. Would we all agree to that? Like, would we have, like, a president, even though we have kings? As long as the president's, you know, in office, you know, the other qualification is you know, they'd be voted on, but they have to be breathing, right? Because as soon as they stop breathing, the power goes to somebody else, right? That makes sense. This guy is going to have a a throne that lasts forever. That means this king is going to rule forever, which tells us something about the nature of this king. Because do people normally live forever? No. That's the end. No, we don't typically live forever. That's, none of us here are a thousand years old. So here we see some things that we have. David is going to be, uh, uh, son of David is going to be a messianic heir. So here are the qualifications. He's got to be a biological descendant of King David. He's got to be a legitimate successor to David's throne. And God's had to build a house for this guy. God's going to build him a house or a temple, all right? Because David said, I'm going to build a house for God. He was going to build a temple. God says, I'm going to build a house for you, a temple. So here are the qualifications. How do we do that? Now, up to this point, this was seemed awfully boring to me. And then I started studying it. And you have to understand uh, genealogies and, and history, the history that, that we have here, um, and the, how amazing what God did is. So here on the left here, we have David, okay? That's the king, and, and David has sons. David has Absalom, Solomon, Nathan, and he's got 10 other kids, 10 other boys uh, and a girl. One of the sons dies young because of uh, sin he had Bathsheba, but he's got lots of kids. So now we've got, out of the entire world, a descendant's going to come from him, but who? Well, the throne passed to Solomon. 
Okay, you remember good King Solomon? And Solomon built the empire and actually built a temple for God and all this kind of stuff was pretty cool. Okay, so now we see this is, not only is it going to be a a son of David, but since the king, the, the rule goes through Solomon, we say, well, this Messiah must also be a son of Solomon. Does that make sense? Just like the promise of God went through Abraham, then Isaac, his son Isaac, and then through Isaac's son Jacob, we have David, Solomon. Well, Solomon ends up uh, being a great king, but a bad dad. And, uh, and so he ends up having a son, Rehoboam. And uh, when Solomon passes, the throne passes to Rehoboam. But Rehoboam was a moron. And the very first thing that he does is he upsets, what, uh, what, 10 twelfths of the empire, right? And, and basically, they leave. They abandon him. And they go to with this other guy who was not a descendant of David at all, Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, um, he, was, uh, he was a servant under Solomon. And, uh, and he basically said to the ten tribes, I will be a better king than Jeroboam or Rehoboam. And so ten tribes end up following him. And so what we have is we have now two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Okay. Jeroboam, uh, the illegitimate king, the illegitimate successor, has Israel. The ten tribes go there. And then, of course, Rehoboam stays south. With uh, He ends up having uh, Judah and Benjamin. Of course, uh, Levi, the tribe of Levi, where the priests were, were on both sides, right? Because they didn't get territory. And there was priests on both sides. But you have Rehoboam with, uh, leading the kingdom of Judah. And so... On the northern kingdom, let's just talk real fast what happens there. There was 18 more kings. All of them were lousy. And eventually, uh, God sends prophets to them and says, hey, turn back to me, all the kind of stuff. They didn't worship God. And eventually, uh, they, they ended up dying. Okay? And uh, they were taken to Assyria. The Assyrians, God rose up the Assyrians. The Assyrians obliterated the northern ten tribes, and they've disappeared. We have no idea where they are. Um, anybody who tells you they know where they are, they are lying because we don't. We have no idea. Those ten tribes ended. The northern kingdom came to an end. But the southern kingdom, now, that was a little different. Uh, The southern kingdom, we end up having this crazy history where uh, Rehoboam um, had lots of other kids. And one of those kids, eventually, after uh, several generations down the line, was this guy named Jehoiakim, who was a king of Israel, son of Rehoboam, son of Solomon, right? Like great, great, great grandson of Rehoboam son of Solomon, son of David. The kingship passed through him. Now, things were bad at the time when uh, Jehoiakim was reigning. See, at that time, the Babylonians had pretty much already captured the whole area. And so Jehoiakim, he was uh, basically a vassal king. He was the king of Israel, but he was basically serving Babylon. Okay? And God rose up this prophet at the time named Jeremiah. Have you ever read Jeremiah? Like, if you're ever in a really good mood and you don't want to be in a good mood anymore, read Jeremiah. It's a great book for that, All right? And so Jeremiah's weeping prophet talks about, you know, the, these things. And Jeremiah has a prophecy that uh, is uh, kind of, um, well, it's a challenge to, to Jehoiakim and basically saying, you need to change, right? Uh, God, you're still God's people, but you're not acting like God's people. And if you don't change, there's going to be huge amounts of, of uh, suffering and stuff, and you don't want that. Well, Jehoiakim is not the smartest guy. And so uh, Jeremiah sends one of his, uh, his servants to, to Jehoiakim's castle, and 
delivers the scroll of the prophecy. This was a prophecy from God, a scripture. And, and the guy who ends up reading it says, you better go hide, and you better go tell Jeremiah to go hide, because this isn't happy. And so they go and they hide, and uh, that servant for the king brings the scroll to the king, and the king begins to read it, and doesn't like what it says, and stands up and throws it in the fire. And God was not happy about that. He was not pleased. And because of what Jehoiakim did, in Jeremiah 36, verse 29, this is what it says, God says, all right, here's my, this is what I want you to tell Jehoiakim because of what he did. He says, tell Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is what the Lord says. You burned that scroll and said, why did you write on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and wipe it, uh, both man and beast? Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on, his, on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed by the heat of day and by the frost of night. Now, that literally took place. Uh, he was actually ex- thrown out, executed, and his body just laid out there in the heat and the frost and all that kind of stuff. But did you hear the prophecy? It said there that, tell him he will have no one to sit on the throne of David. Well, uh-oh. Now we have a problem. There will be no... <laughs> No one is sit on the throne of David. Wait a second, where does, where does the, the lineage, the king's lineage go through? Jehoiakim. We have a problem. Because the king needs to be a biological descendant as well as a legitimate heir of the throne. And God says to him, your kids are not going to be the ones that take the throne up. Well, Jehoiakim ends up having a son named Jehoiachin who was just as bad. And you talk about... Get creative with your names, right? He's like, I don't know, name him Chin, right? Now, Jehoiachin, uh, he, was, uh, he was also an a unwise king after his dad was removed. Jehoiachin served for three months um, before being executed, and then he was replaced by his son, Zedekiah. That's a name that you may know. Um, and he was the last king of Judah as the, as the kingdom of, of, of Israel. And, um, but before Jehoiachin was executed in that three months, he had the ability to mess up and God was able to give him a prophecy as well. And he says in Jeremiah twenty two twenty four, and surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my hand, I would still put you off like I'm re- rejecting you. And then in Jeremiah 22, later he says, in verse 30, this is what the Lord says, record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. That's, that's what God says about Jehoiachin. So now we have two prophecies that God has got to contend with. We have this, the first one, Jehoiakim says, he can't have a son sits on the throne. And then Jehoiachin, who the the throne would pass to, also, you will not have a son that will sit on the throne. But David will have a son who will sit on the throne. Do you see the problem we have? How can we fix this? God promised, he said, David, you will have a legitimate heir sit on the throne. And yet then God gives two prophecies about to these two guys saying, you won't have sons who sit on the throne. Yet the legitimate, prophet, the legitimate throne goes through those guys. How will God solve this? Have you ever been a place in your life where it looks like God can't keep his word? 
right? Where he tells you one thing and then something else happens and you say, God, it is impossible for you not to be a liar. This was the tension of Judah, right? They all knew that the Messiah had to be a son of David, but they also knew that the Messiah couldn't be the legitimate heir of the throne. Weird, right? And so they spiritualized it like we sometimes do when we have a hard time trusting God. But God had bigger plans. You see, Jehoiachin had Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah, but Judah didn't end, right? The people of Israel taken to captivity to Babylon. Then they came back, and they kept all these wonderful genealogical records. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to read how eventually Jehoiachin had a son, had a son, had a son, had a son who had this guy named Joseph. There was a, a little guy named Joseph, and Joseph ended up eventually having a boy Name Jesus. Now, the lineage, the, the right passage of, of all of these things, right? The, the kingship went from David to Solomon, Solomon to Rehoboam, Rehoboam all the way through all the other kings. Joseph was legitimate heir, which is crazy. Well, why wasn't Joseph more than a carpenter? Because Judah had been dead for like 400 years. There was no kingdom to have a throne on anymore. But remember, God didn't say he was going to preserve David's throne. God said he was going to raise up this, this messianic king and create a kingdom for him. But that king would be the right heir of the throne of David. Now, you see that there's dotted lines there between Joseph and Jesus, and that's because God did something awesome. You see, Matthew records, Matthew is a Jew, and Matthew records about Jewish law and heritage, things like this, about how legally the kingship would go through. How is the royal heir? How is it supposed to, to travel to Jesus? Something interesting about Jesus. Jesus was not Joseph's biological father. Or Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father. Isn't that crazy? But he was the first son. And as first son in that household, the, the, uh, the title, the, the rule, uh, that would be that he would be the rightful heir of the throne. This is that crazy. God solved the problem by doing something no one expected, an incarnation. Now, Jesus was son of Joseph in the way of legality, but he was not son of Joseph according to biology. And so the, the prophecy could be kept true. There was an heir of David who would be on a throne forever. I think, to me, that is genius, right? He wasn't a son of Jehoiakim or Jehoiachin. They had no place in the rule, in the throne. But David did. That is awesome. So we look at our scorecard and we say, what is the messianic era, this prophecy? One of those things was be a legitimate successor to David's throne. That's exactly what Jesus did. Well, what about those other two? How about be a biological descendant of King David? He still doesn't do that, right? Well, uh, God's one step ahead as he typically is. You see, there were other sons of David, weren't there? Do you remember these guys? Absalom, Nathan, and all those 10 other guys, right? Well, David had uh, this son named uh, Nathan. And Nathan, well, uh, he was a biological son. Nathan ended up having lots of kids, even though he wasn't in the king's lineage. And one of those, eventually, if we read the Gospel of Luke, turns out to be Mary, which is pretty awesome. And Mary actually is the biological parent of Jesus. 
And so we see this amazing thing here where the Gospel of Luke was written by a Gentile, right? That's why there's two different genealogies. Some people are like, oh, there's two different genealogies. We can't trust the Bible. Like, you guys are morons. You have no idea what God is showing us here. He's proving that he kept the prophecy. Now, what we have here is the uh, Gospel of Luke was written by uh, Luke, the Gentile. Gentiles cared about biology, who was Jesus really uh, connected to? And it's interesting, if you read the Gospel of Luke's account of, of how, because um, it doesn't say Mary's name. It says the son of De- uh, Jesus was, uh, was the uh, son of uh, Joseph who had a child through Mary, right? Why would say that? Because legally she was married to him, but... All the other ways in the, in the Gospel of Luke, it says this person was the biological son of this person, was the biological son of this person. Actually, he goes the other way, but, but he talks about these are biological until he gets to Jesus. And Luke is very careful to make sure that we know that, that, that uh, Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, but Mary is. I think that's pretty fascinating. And he follows Mary's because it's all about bio- biology. He follows Mary's lineage. And so we see here that, that Jesus was both the biological son of David. He would have an offspring from his own flesh and blood, right? That would take the throne through Nathan. And he would also have an heir of the throne that was legitimate that came through Solomon. Ah, isn't that amazing? God did the impossible. We would look at it and say, there is no way that this could take place. And the only way that it could take place is that Jesus had to be incarnated. He couldn't have been the biological son of his dad. That's the only way it could take place. God chose Mary, not just out of any of the girls out there. There was a lineage, a history, a purpose to her life. And the same thing as Joseph, and he brought them together. There was a reason why we know their names. God is showing us something huge. There is only one person in all of history who was qualified to fulfill this prophecy. And his name is Jesus. I think it's just the most phenomenal thing. We look at our scorecard. We have biological heir. We have legitimate successor to David's throne. That's pretty cool. And in fact, that's so good. Let's just look at it again. Look what God did. He, he changes history. He, he, he's in charge of not just... I Think about how much random chance we would say who's going to fall in love with who and what kids are they going to have. But before time began, uh, when, when this prophecy was made a thousand years before Jesus was born, God already knew every single child and knew who they were going to have as children and eventually who would lead up to be the Messiah. Does that blow your mind? God is brilliant. God can do anything. Let me clean this up for us. There is a, two Gospels which mess people up because they have the two different, uh, they have the two different uh, genealogies. We have David, who's going to be the king. You have Solomon on one side, Nathan on the other, right? Gospel of Matthew talks about Solomon's lineage. Gospel of Luke goes with Nathan's. Then we have Joseph and Mary below there. Solomon, Joseph comes from Solomon, who came from David. We have Mary comes from Nathan, who came from David. They both join, and then we have Jesus in the middle. And... Uh, and this is what we have here. Uh, Matthew, the focus is on a legal and thus a royal heritage. So we see that there with Matthew. That's what he's looking at, the legal and royal heritage, about how 
David had Solomon, Solomon had Joseph, Joseph had Jesus. That is how Jesus is king of Israel, right? He is the, he is the successor of, of Israel. Um, in Matthew 16, or 116, uh, Matthew preserves the virgin birth of Jesus at the same time makes it clear that Jesus did not come under the curse upon Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. Amazing. He breaks the pattern. He carefully avoids recording that Joseph begat. Instead, he records Joseph was the, uh, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. He makes it very clear that that's a dotted line, not a straight one between Joseph and Jesus. Genius. Okay? In the English translation, um, that, that's a little amb- ambiguous. Um, but in the Greek, the of whom, like Jesus was born, of whom he was born, is feminine which also points to the fact that it was Mary was his mother, right? So even linguistically, it was very clear in Scripture that we're talking about the biological pattern broke between Joseph and Jesus, and yet the legal one didn't. Fascinating. Luke, however, was not a Jew, and so Luke's, um, he's focusing on biology and lineage, right? And so Luke says David came from, uh, Nathan came from David, Mary came from Nathan, and Jesus came from Mary. And so that's, uh, he's talking about the genetic follower. How would they be an actual son? And if we look at this long enough, I think that it, it, something begins to emerge to us. Like you don't have to study scripture long until you see that Jesus was the messianic king that was prophesied, the only one. Isn't that phenomenal? The scriptures testify a thousand-year-old prophecy that seemed impossible came true to the letter in the most impractical and improbable of ways. That's how amazing our God is. And so we see now that the son of David is an eternal king. That was another one of the prophecies, right? He wouldn't die. And what do we know about Jesus? Well, um, he died and then he came back to live forever. If you have questions about how that happened, view last week's message about son of man and how incredible it is that he has eternal life. In fact, uh, Luke one thirty says this, but an angel said to Mary, and this is what, what the angel is saying to Mary. He says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have been found with favor with God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, and he will be, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And that prophecy, what did it say? He will be called my father, and I, I'll be called his father, and he'll be my son. And the Lord will give him a throne of his father David. And if it wasn't clear enough that this guy was going to fulfill the prophecy, he says he's going, to be the, he's going to fulfill the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants. How long? Oh, the angel said forever and his kingdom will never end to put a punctuation note on that. I think that's fascinating. The eternal king has these qualifications then. God would establish his kingdom for him, right? That's the qualifications of the prophecy. This kingdom would last forever and the king would rule forever. And we see in Jesus that he fulfills all of those. I think this is when we begin to look at prophecies and we say, well, you know what? God will establish a kingdom for him. Did Jesus raise himself from the dead? No, it says God the Father raised him and then brought him to the right hand of God. We also read in Psalms, it says, God says to his son, the Messiah, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's also quoted again in Hebrews. God's saying, I am raising a kingdom for you. In fact, Jesus says to the disciples before he goes to heaven, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. God has raised a kingdom for this and he didn't have to fight for it. He just had to lay down his life. 
Oh, that's an amazing thing. This kingdom would last forever. How long will Jesus' rule reign? Well, he's not going to die because he's already died and he's rose again. He's eternal life. He's going to be king forever. And that's exactly what God says about him. And, and because of that, he's going to rule forever. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And there is no end to his term. You see, we saw the first half of the prophecy and it seemed impossible, didn't it? It seemed impossible that a son of David could actually be the heir of David and could, could fulfill the prophecy and God did it. And though in our world today we see people don't live forever and so it seems improbable that there could be a king that will live forever, but I'll tell you this, God has a good track record of keeping his word. And Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords and he will never go off his throne. And that tells us something maybe how we should approach him. Right? Well, we go back to the messianic heir. We do have that. There were three things that were prophesied. There would be a biological descendant, a legitimate answer, a successor to David, but there was that third one we still didn't talk about yet, that God would build a house for him, a temple. And this is really cool. Jesus, in, in, as recorded in John 2.18, says this. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove that your authority to do all of this? Because he just kicked all the people out of the temple. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they would reply, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it again in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scriptures with the words that Jesus had spoken. And Jesus quotes that very prophecy and says, listen, God's going to build me. And what did we call? He, he was a temple of, of God. And then, what are you called? You also now, once you have died and baptized into the faith, right, and, and born again, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God has raised a kingdom that will never end in you. How cool is that? You see, even this, where God says, I will build a house or a temple in him, for him. He fulfills the prophecy. To the letter, to the detail, God has fulfilled his promise. He's given us the prophesied son of David. There is no one else in all of history that could possibly keep these particular uh, prophecies. I think that's one of the most phenomenal things with this. We don't have to wonder as Jesus Messiah. He has been legitimized very, very specifically through the most, the most famous messianic prophecy of them all, the most impossible of them all. Jesus is Messiah. He is the prophesied son of David. I think that's, uh, it changes us. See, as son of David, Jesus alone is qualified to build God's temple. And he does that in us. As the qualified son of David, he's the only one qualified to sit on the throne. He's the only one qualified to be called son of God. He's the only one qualified to be called our king. He's the only one qualified to save us. And so what do we do with that? Well, here are some things that I would suggest to do. You have, you have your, your card. I know this is a very intellectual type of message, but it's also very practical. You understand that we're not joking here. Jesus really is king of kings, and it means he's going to come back. That means that this world that we're living in is not forever, but the one to come is. And so what are we going to live for? Are we going to live for this temporary world now? Are we going to live for the one that's to come? Are we going to live for our kingdoms here and worry about so much about our life here? Are we going to worry about the one that's going to last forever, the one that we're already a part of in Christ? You see, he's shown us that he's legitimate, that this is not a game, that faith is not just something that you do, that church is not a club. Jesus is coming back. 
And when he comes back, we are his servants. We are also his family. And he loves us, but he's given us work to do. And we had better be about doing it. This is not something that we should take lightly. God has, has done the impossible in bringing us a Messiah. And he requires now, he asks us, he's given us purpose in life. This is not something that we should just intellectually store in the back of our minds. Oh, that's nice. Your faith is real. It's based on reality. And there's a day that is coming that you will see him come in the clouds of glory. It's going to happen. So what are we going to do today knowing that? That's what we encourage you to do today. On the back of your, of your connection card, we have some things to help us begin to live with this type of reality. The first one is encourage you memorize Ephesians 2.8. Because so many people think that it's going to be of their own power that they're going to save themselves. But I will tell you, could we fulfill these prophecies? No, it is by God's grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God gave us an amazing gift in Jesus. We can't take that for granted. That he came not just to be king, but to save and you've been saved by his grace. We live serve a great king, a loving king, and a kind king, and a good king. You've been saved by his grace. But it's through faith. God's given us a reason to believe. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of things in life that are going to challenge your faith. There's things in life that are going to match what you think God should do. And you're going to say you're going to have times where you think you're going to doubt, just like Thomas did. He would say, Messiah shouldn't die, <laughs> right? But God showed him that, you know what? He could still die and live forever. We have to cling to faith. You have to trust in Jesus. I don't know where you are in life right now, but this passage is something that I know is a regular thing that helps me to know that God can do the impossible, that I'm related to him, not because of what I do, but because of what he has done, and that I can trust him. You are saved by grace through faith. If you haven't memorized that yet, memorize it. In fact, we even gave you a little memory verse card in your bulletin, so that way you can take it home and begin that process of, of tattooing that incredible truth into your very soul. Or how about this? Maybe you want to read... 2 Samuel 7. Read scripture in context. See what's going on. Test me. See if what I said was true. Read this. It's amazing when you read a thousand-year-old writings, actually 3,000-year-old writings, thousand years old when Jesus was, was born, and you see how very specifically he says Jesus is going to fulfill this. Read the context. Maybe you say this week you're going to read some, some of the old prophets. 2 Samuel. I'll give you some context, so... Be that. How about this? Maybe what you need to do is trust God. Maybe right now what you need to do is trust God. God's told you to do something in your life and it looks impossible. He's asked you to do something in your own life and you're saying, oh, I can't possibly do that. God is really good at overcoming the impossible and making it possible. That's why he, he proves himself to be true. Maybe at this particular time in your life you need to trust God. And what does it say? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Maybe that's where we need to go. If that's you, have that encouragement. Let me know because I'll be praying for you because I know that the walk of faith makes sense but it's also a walk of faith and it's hard. Let me support you. Let me know this because I will be supporting you this week through my prayers. Or how about this? Maybe you need to do is advance his kingdom because he is king of kings and lord of lords and he is coming back. And we have been saved by God's grace through faith. And that wasn't of ourselves, it was a gift of God but you know what? That gift wasn't just for you and me. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth. He's king of kings and lord of lords. given to him and he says this, go to all people, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything he's commanded. And surely he's with you always, even to the end of the age. That is your commission. That's not just mine. It's not just pastors that make disciples. It's you. 
We are disciples to make disciples. And maybe what you need to do is begin praying to advance the kingdom. If you don't have somebody that you know who doesn't know Jesus, start praying that God will put something in your life, right? But if you have people in your life that don't know Jesus, start praying for them. Don't just start praying that God will will save them. Pray that God will prepare their hearts for the gospel. Pray that God will prepare you to share the gospel. How about that? How about pray for opportunities and words and courage when the opportunity comes? Or how about this? Maybe it's even inviting somebody to church and saying, you know what? There is something bigger. Maybe what you have decided to do in your heart, you don't know how it looks right now, but you say, you know what? I'm going to expand his kingdom. I'm going to pick up the call that my king has given me. Now, if that's you, let me know because I know that also takes courage. Or maybe there's something else that you need to do. Let us know about this because there's another commitment the Holy Spirit's speaking in your heart right now. Let me know why I support you. That's what a pastor does. You know, another thing we have here is uh, maybe you're here this morning and you've never actually surrendered to Jesus as your king, as your Lord. Jesus never said to anybody, come to me for savior. He said, I will save you. But he said this, come to me as your king, as your Lord. That's what he told us to do. And if you've never come to Jesus as your king, surrendered your life to him so that you can reap the benefits of salvation and so many other things, that's the place you have to start. And if that's you, I want you to let me know. Right over here it says starting a relationship with Jesus. Make sure I have your contact information if that's you because I'll get a hold of you this week. I know you'll have questions, things like that. We'll talk through. We'll talk about how do you take those steps of faith to become a Christian and how do you begin to follow him. We'll walk alongside you the whole path. Or maybe you just have a prayer request. You know, we love to join you in prayer. Our king has the authority to make things happen. I love that about Jesus. Nothing is impossible for him. And he asks us to bring all of our burdens to him. So if you have a burden, please write it down. And in a few minutes, we're going to take our offering. If we take our offering, please take these connection cards and put them in the basket. Of course, before we do that and take our offering, I would like to take a little time. We always love to to have opportunity for us to talk to this amazing king, our Lord of Lords. If there's something on your hearts that you want to pray, uh, this will be an opportunity for you to do that, either uh, out loud or just in the quiet of your own heart. And uh, and so we'll pray for our offering. We'll just bring these prayers to him together. Please join me. Father God, thank you for doing the impossible. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he actually is king of kings and Lord of Lords. Thank you for that you listen to us. Thank you that you've given us reason to trust you. And though it is by faith that we follow you, it is a very reasonable faith. You've proved yourself over and over again in the prophets. And so, Father, since you are real, we can trust your word. Your word is proven to be true. And, Father, your word says that we can bring our prayers to you. I pray that you would hear them, that you will answer them according to your wisdom and your power. And for your glory, we ask this in Christ's name.